Welcome to our opening night of Saturday Night Football on ABC, presented by Southwest Airlines. Tonight, the Chick-fil-A kickoff game matches the LSU Tigers and the North Carolina Tar Heels. Now, the Tar Heels became front page news because of rules violations and possible violations. Thirteen players were left back in Chapel Hill, including seven defensive starters. Three of their starting defensive linemen, the linebacking core intact, but the entire starting secondary decimated because of violations. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. What is good, everybody? Welcome back. Throwback podcast, Inside Carolina, InsideCarolina.com. This is episode 11, and we're coming up on a really, really big anniversary. I know a lot of Tar Heel fans probably remember this. And I can't take credit for trying to nail it on, on the dot, but uh, we're about 10 years from the anniversary of the NCAA arriving on campus in Chapel Hill. Well, this podcast is not about that. This podcast is about nostalgia and looking back on, on fun stuff and big games and classic games. And what we're going to talk about tonight is the 2010 football game in the Georgia Dome against LSU. Uh, it was big time. Before we get rolling... I want to make sure that I give you guys some instructions. We've got to do some, some homework, a little housekeeping. I need you to give us a rating or review on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you consume this podcast. That helps us get our podcast to the top of their search algorithms, which helps us get more ad revenue, which helps us grow this empire. I mean, I, I got to give a shout out to all the IC guys, you know, Tommy, Ross, uh, Greg, Sherelle, uh, Don, everybody that's putting out some really top quality podcasts on 24-7 Sports Network. But uh, I want you to give us some ratings. So drop in right now, whatever you're doing. Hit pause. Go do that. Give us a good rating. If you don't like what we're doing, shoot us a message. We want to be better, right? We want to give you guys the content that you're, you expect and the high quality that you have come to, to expect and receive from Inside Carolina and InsideCarolina.com. Also want to give a, a huge shout out, as always, to our friends over at Johnny T-Shirt, JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Local business in Chapel Hill have been supporters of Inside Carolina going back to, to God knows when. They are loyal. Uh, we hope that you guys continue to be loyal to them. Support them. They've always got really high-quality gear going on. Nice stuff. Big sales happening right now. Uh, heard from Tommy. There's a, a really big sale that hit his inbox last night. Um, some stuff up to 70% off. Go check them out. JohnnyTShirt.com. They can get the stuff to you quickly. Uh, even if you, you want to pop in, check their hours, see when they're open right now in the midst of you know, in the midst of this pandemic and make sure you, you use them, patronize them, show them some love because they've been so supportive and shown us so much love here at Inside Carolina. Now, with all that said, let me set some stuff up for you here because this game is, is a little different than a lot of the other episodes we've had. You know, usually you guys know the drill. I come in, I try to tee the game up. Then I bring in our guests and let them, you know, really show off all their knowledge and their memories about it. This was going to be a little different just because there was so much extra uh, on the periphery and context surrounding this game. Uh, September 4th, 2010, the Georgia Dome, you know, we're, it's the biggest game you can think of. And, and we'll let our guests elaborate on it here in a second. But 
this was a game that you circled way out because it was the Chick-fil-A kickoff. You knew well ahead of time who it was going to be. This is kind of what Butch Davis was brought into Carolina for, was for big marquee games against big marquee teams. Um, and everything was building towards that. UNC had seemingly brought back everyone from the year before, both on offense and defense. The pundits were just salivating at the opportunity to see all of these guys on the field on both sides of the ball. Uh, this is kind of what Butch had been building from since he first got to campus, was kind of telling the fans, hey, give us a couple of years. It was all crescendoing to this moment. This game on September the 4th, Carolina was rated 18th coming in. LSU was rated 21st. You're playing in Atlanta against an SEC team. This is the coming out party, right? UNC is on the precipice of just such big things. And then I'm going to bring in right now uh, our guest for today to talk about what happened then. Uh, first off, G-Reg, you know him. He basically, and I've mentioned this to him before we started recording, I feel like he, he covered this. Well, I'd challenge anybody to put coverage of this NCAA scandal up against Greg and I'll take Greg, you know, seven days a week and twice on Sunday because his coverage was that good via Inside Carolina. Um, G-Reg, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on again. Yep, appreciate you being here as always. And then second, not last, but second as I'm introducing him, a guy that got his first start in this game, uh, Lou Merletti's baby boy, Matt Merletti, 25. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me on. This is going to be fun. No, so – I've, I've kind of teed it up. You know, we had all of this momentum. Everything was building. You know, everything had been simmering on the stove. All the ingredients are right. Everything feels good. And then, Greg, I think uh, I heard Tommy tell the story. Uh, you know, you sent a text to your colleagues in Inside Carolina, NCAA in Chapel Hill, and that may have actually been what the title of your article was. Greg, what happened? Uh, well, we got word of actually that the first tip we got was from a, from a UNC football player. And then we, we took it, you know, in our normal steps and checking with a variety of other people and uh, basically found out that the NCAA uh, had, had learned some, some things and were wanting to ask some questions about impermissible benefits. This is well before any academic stuff kind of popped up. Uh, and so they wanted to come in and have some interviews. And so we contacted UNC and Kevin Bess, who's now with the ACC, uh, me and him kind of joke about this and have over the last decade. He was actually on the golf course. I believe that he was at Chapel Hill Country Club. Ouch. When, uh, when I contacted him. And so he got in his golf cart and drove to his car and uh, made the phone call to, to Dickie. And that's when I talked to Dickie. And I uh, got the ball rolling very quickly. And initially, uh, Dickie would not confirm that, that football players were involved. By that point in time, we already knew that, that Marvin Austin and Greg Little we're kind of at the, the heart of it, and uh, things move very quickly from there. And Greg's actually referencing former UNC Athletic uh, Director Dickie Bedore. Matt, had you guys started workouts yet? I mean, this was, this was uh, I think, you know, middle to late July, so you were everybody was probably back on campus. I don't know if you had started camp yet, but what do you remember about when you first heard about the NCAA being in Chapel Hill? So it's funny. I was talking to one of my best friends and former roommates and teammates, uh, Trace Jones, earlier today. It's so strange, and I'll explain maybe why I think this or feel this way, but um, I don't remember a time, which is very strange. And um, I don't remember. We're about a year or 10 years, you know, to the day almost. And 
I don't remember it being like that at all. We, obviously, we know what the truth is, but like I have no recollection of finding out before training camp. And at this point in time, we were probably – we usually got like a week off before we came to training camp. And so I was probably back home in Cleveland and, um, and working out. And then when we came back, that's when I remember, you know, everything kind of happening all at once. And that's kind of when I remember – thinking like, man, this is actually going to be something, uh, you know, fairly big, but maybe my dates are wrong. Again, I, I barely remembered anything. I'm sure. Um, I mean, I guess you guys would, Greg, you especially would know when did we usually come back? Like what was the date? Do you remember when training camp would start? Yeah. Typically it's always been the, the beginning of, of August. Uh, is when That's what I thought. Yeah. About so a month out. So we were probably still in workouts, maybe doing exams, you know, for the second summer session. I really don't remember exactly, but, um, but to answer your question, you know, what do I remember about first finding out? My first recollection is like on the field during training camp. Wow. So, so tell us about that. When you, you get back into town, you move back into your place, you guys are, you know, getting ready to probably start with shells and go through your first training camp day. What was different? So it's funny the there was a lot of noise surrounding you know the program and everything and again my memory is like is halfway fuzzy I, I remember like it's almost like I remember like flashes of, of bits and pieces of what was happening um, but all of the starters you know every especially on defense from my perspective everybody was playing and practicing you know with the same depth chart um, so nothing had really changed although there was a ton of noise um, you know outside uh, you know media there was there was I, I definitely remember that part that there was a ton of media before and after practice. There was just, it was a heightened sense of that. And one of the first days, if not, it might've been when everything, maybe the week of the game, I'm really not sure when exactly this happened, but I distinctly remember after practice one evening and all of us being on Navy field, taking a knee and Butch was up there, you know, kind of talking to us and there were helicopters circling and filming Whoa. us. And that was just such an eerie feeling. And you, it, that's when it kind of set in for us. Again, I wish I remember when this exactly was, but that's when it kind of set in, maybe for me at least, that this was really serious and that guys probably aren't going to be playing in this LSU game. And that's kind of the, the gist of how that all looked for me and how that felt, you know, initially. But um, so, yeah, that's kind of what it was like. Greg, I want to toss to you. Same thing. When did it become clear that, you know, you mentioned earlier, within 24 hours, you kind of got wind that it was Greg Little, Marvin Austin. When did it become clear to you, Greg, as, as, you know, a writer and a journalist for Inside Carolina, that it was going to be significant players and that there was going to be a real change in who UNC was able to put on the field, uh, or, or I guess who, who UNC was going to even be able to practice with at that point? Well, the first interviews took place July 12th and 13th, and that was all uh, pursuant to the uh, impermissible benefits. And we knew there's only a couple players involved there. When we started doing some public records requests, we, we were able to get our hands on some, some documents between NCAA and UNC. Uh, this is the end of July. And at that point in time, the NCAA had, had decided they wanted to do some more interviews. And so some of those interviews took place the first week of August. Um, and as those interviews took place, um, we, we actually had reported at the time that, that Greg Little was kind of at the, at the heart of it. Yes, he was part of the, the benefits part of it, 
but during an interview pertaining to those benefits, uh, something happened where he came up and shared Jennifer Wiley's name, who was the tutor in question behind the academic leg of it. Uh, there are some interesting stories uh, about how all that came, came to be, and that's something we can probably share over a beer one of these days. Um, but very quickly after that, it became somewhat of an issue. And uh, I'll share this. I think this is, this is kind of a funny story that I'll always remember. I believe it was August 26th. Uh, and we knew that some players uh, had been relegated to the scout team, some of the, the big name guys. And it wasn't just Marvin Austin and Greg Little. By that point in time, we knew those guys were not going to be playing, most likely. But there's a lot of other guys uh, that had kind of been moved off the, the depth chart a little bit. Um, and so I had requested an interview that morning with Michael McAdoo. Now, I did not know that Michael McAdoo was one of the people uh, that was going to ultimately end up missing the LSU game, and he had a very difficult road from, from there on out. Um, but I was just wanting to talk to him about some, some odds and ends. And UNC, when they saw that I had been sniffing around and they saw that I had requested an interview with McAdoo and it had been granted, uh, they asked that I come in and talk with them that morning. So for those of you not familiar with the fifth floor of the Keenan Football Center, uh, as you go up the elevator and you're facing the field, so the blue zone is, is across the way, as soon as the doors open, the co head coach is switched to your right. Uh, kind of in the middles where most of the assistant coaches are, some are down to the left, but a lot of the admins and sports information, all that, used to be down to the left. That's kind of changed now. Uh, so I went up and I walked to the left, and there was a couch facing all the way down the hallway where the head coach's lounge was. So while I'm waiting to have my little conversation, I'm sitting there, and this is yeah, lunchtime. And I hear a door open, and I look across the way, and out first walks Dick Bedore, then Butch Davis, and then Holden Thorpe. And I'll never forget it because all three of those guys looked at varying levels of disappointment and frustration and fear. You know, Butch Davis was just ticked off. But I don't think that man really had any fear in him. Uh, Holden Thorpe was a little bit of a different story. And so we all kind of look at each other and nod and wave and that kind of thing and, and go about it. So I end up having my conversation. It's essentially like, hey, what do you know on this? Why, why are you asking about McAdoo? I kind of shared what I had. And he said, all right, look, you've got until 2.30 to publish your story. Because at that point in time, we're announcing that we're having a press conference tonight at 7.30 to detail these academic uh, revelations. And uh, from there, it became very clear that a lot of these guys were going to miss time. And that was only a week before you know, the, the team left for, I believe that was a Thursday night, if I remember correctly. It feels then, right. The next week, of course, Friday morning was where it got really fun. And at that point in time, you're talking about more than a dozen guys who may or may not be able to make that trip. Okay, so filling in the gaps here, I'm trying to kind of keep the timeline consecutive for our listeners and our viewers. So, Matt, um, I'm assuming, you know, the press conference probably changes the way things are operating inside the football center, right? Like, then at that point? I swear to you. I, I, I wish I Still? remember like, okay. as, as it happened. But, like, let me – so I alluded to it earlier, and I didn't say why. But, like, the reason I think that I didn't – that maybe I don't remember all this is because I had a lot going on personally. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of give context for that, 2009, the season before – I had been, you know, that's going into my junior year. Um, mm -hmm. I hadn't redshirted or anything like that. 
And I had been basically, I'm 21 years old. I've been working my entire life. Things are finally starting to pay off where I'm actually going to be big enough, strong enough, fast enough to be able to actually play and contribute. Yeah. During that training camp, I earned the starting role for Nickelback. It's like, I'm going to be playing for the first time on defense. I had one play under my belt before then. I remember it specifically because it was a pretty important one. The 2008 Notre Dame game at home, one of the last plays of the game, whenever they were going for the end zone, we had a dime look on defense, which is six defensive backs. We didn't have that type of look. So we literally (laughs) drew it up on the sideline. I was the sixth guy, and I came in and got my first rep on defense. So – I literally had one rep, okay? And, and I, I earned my starting job for nickel, at least, um, in 2009, tear my ACL that training camp as well. Mm. So going into 2010, I'm trying to make it back. And yeah. I, I mentioned that, you know, that I was, you know, earning a starting role and everything because it was – Coach C got me right. It was like three years with him, and I was, you know, the biggest, strongest, fastest, really, that I probably ever was in my career because I don't know that I got back to that point. But going into 2010, I was not ready. I was healthy enough and good enough to play, but I was third string going into that camp. And I was third string for a reason. I wasn't, wasn't all there. You know, the knee was not the same. Yeah. I, was not, I, I was not as explosive. I couldn't jump as high. It just changed the direction. Nothing was the same. Um, I was probably, I don't know, 80 some percent. Like I, I did not feel great. I felt good. If, and that's a stretch to say good. So I had a lot going on in that sense because I I just didn't know how I was going to respond. You know, my confidence was like an all time low trying to come back from something like that and just not being the same and realizing that I had, I had one of those freaking big offensive lineman knee braces that I was wearing the entire camp up until the week. The robo leg. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was not, it was not good. So um, that's why I, I think I don't remember a ton of this is because I just had so much going on personally that, um, you know, I, I was worried about just making sure I knew the plays and that I was yeah. locked in. And, um, and I tried to block out as much as I could about the outside noise just because it wasn't going to do anything. It was only going to hurt things. You know, and that Butch makes a ton so, of sense. It does. And Butch was so adamant on staying focused on what you can control, which is so cliche, but it's like, that's all you can do in that point at that point in time. And that's really what we were trying to do. So I don't know to answer your no, question. That's, that's kind of why I was, that's kind of why I was like that. And why I think I only remember like snapshots of, of all of this kind of going on, at least leading up to the game. I remember a lot more during the game. I was actually going to go in that route because you always hear about the best coaches, especially the ones that were the CEO types like Butch Davis was known to be are so good at compartmentalizing. And then players are always taught to compartmentalize and worry about, you know, worry about the next rep, worry about the next game, worry about what's in front of you as opposed to what's going on outside the Keenan football center. We heard that a lot that year. Um, So let's, let's fast forward a little bit. I want to ask you, Matt, and then I'll, I'll flip over to Greg and we'll talk about some, some bus watching amongst the media. Matt, what can you tell us about those last few hours before kickoff? All right. So let's get to the point to where you found out, Oh, I'm going to start um, going from your one rep to a, a major knee reconstruction to, Oh, I'm getting ready to start on what w- at the time was the biggest stage UNC football had been on in quite some time. Yep. So that week is when, you know, the coaches, they didn't really, I mean, nobody had ever really been through this, including them, but like, they didn't really keep us in the loop on like who was in, who's out, who's being, you know, in, uh, 
you know, investigated anything like that. We didn't know. We, we just kind of, it was like word of mouth, like, oh, well, which players, you know, walked out, you know, you're trying to like keep track of who's who. And <laughs> I'm serious. That's, they did not really tell us anything. And just to illustrate that point even further on like when I found out I was starting the week of the game, again, this is like when I decided to take my knee brace off, I was not going to take it off, but so the week of that game go into like Tuesday that week before every single practice. And this is especially important during training camp because depth charts move, but the, the coach puts a depth chart, uh, depth chart up before practice in your, in your pre-practice meeting, puts it up and says, all right, this is what we're going to go with. Usually there was like no changes. And again, remember I'm third string and he puts it up on Tuesday that week and says, all right, this is what we're going to go with. It's, Mywan Jackson, LeCount Fantroy, Matt Merletti, and Gene Robinson as the starting four defensive backs. And we're like, looking around, we're like, what? And, you know, it, it did not include Denoris, KB, Deontay, all those guys, John Smith, uh, Brian Gupton, I think. I'm trying, it's hard to remember them all. But it didn't include, like, any of those guys. And, like, I'm like, hadn't heard a word about, like, what, what was happening there. I'm like, what, what is going on? And I was thinking, it felt for some reason like, you know, when like a coach makes an example of somebody and it's like, all right, you know, Roy Williams does it actually. He for takes all the starters reasons. out, puts, yeah. all, puts all the backups in. It felt like that. And I'm like, okay, whatever. We're going to go start practice like this until they, you know, get their act together. Right. And like, I didn't know if they had gotten in trouble with, you know, some of them didn't go to class or whatever it was. I was not thinking I'm going to start and this is going to be the depth chart for the game. Never in a million years did I think that. And so it started to feel a little bit different during that practice because I started to realize these coaches are coaching the hell out of us. <laughs> I've never been coached before in my life. Yelling. You could just tell there was a sense of urgency and yeah. the heightened levels of, of energy, anxiety, all of that. And I was like, something's off. You know, this does not feel right. But, but at the same time, as that week went on, I did not think that it was going to happen. I kept thinking they're going to get it sorted out. You know, like, again, I'm kind of almost hoping in a way that that was going to happen because I did not feel confident in my leg and I didn't feel confident, you know, just in, in the, the rehab process in and of itself. Like it didn't hurt that bad. It was just, I knew I wasn't ready to go in. Remember one play yeah. total on defense experience. And then I start looking around. It's like, these guys have never played. Yeah. I'm the oldest one in the room. We got true freshmen, Trey Boston, Jabari. Um, they're, they're both coming in. And it's like, yes, they're, they're athletically gifted, but like, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. That's uh, that's gotta had to have been tough too, for you to prepare along with all these other guys. So Greg, that's Matt's perspective coming into the week of prep before they jumped on the bus. I think a lot of uh, inside Carolina subscribers will remember this as bus watching. And it, it literally, I remember Greg was giving updates. I was driving down to the game with my family and the woman that would now be my wife and like, you know, we, we'd hit a stoplight or hit traffic and I'm stopping to look and see what, what's going up on Inside Carolina's Twitter at the time. So, Greg, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, that Friday, I think it was a Friday, everybody started leaving that morning. You, you know, you're watching the team get on the bus. Um, tell us a little bit about your perspective and, and kind of how you guys were able to, to glean who was in, who was out and, and where this roller coaster was going to actually stop. Well, the interesting thing about it was because – because everything with the academic portion really got started late in August, um, it was not a very clear picture for the administration. 
And so what they were trying to do is they were trying to acquire as much information on what actually transpired with the tutor and, and some of this other stuff as they could so they can make a decision, hey, we're going to play this player. We don't think it's going to be an issue of eligibility because if you play an ineligible player, you may as well not play the game because you're going to, you're going to automatically lose it, forfeit it. Um, and so that was really the challenge is because in, in talking you know, with, with Dick Bedore and some of his other staff, it was a matter of, okay, we have to determine eligibility first, but then if it's any kind of iffy, we've, we've got to just withhold them. And so uh, we knew that there was you know, a number of guys who were not going to play that Friday morning. And it's you know, first thing in the morning. Right. Uh, North Carolina had not released any information about who it was going to be. But we knew you know, Marvin Austin, uh, Kendrick Burney was in the mix there, Little, uh, McAdoo, Robert Quinn. I think Charles Brown was the other one. Yes. Um, uh, but we knew those six were, were most likely the ones that were not going to be able to play. But we also knew that there was, you know, another five, six, seven, eight, nine guys who may, I mean, Denoris seriously, I mean, how horrible of a story is it for him where he's got a professor overseas that knew anything wrong, but because they can't reach his professor, they get screwed. But that was kind of the situation for a lot of these guys is, is trying to figure out, okay, what's the boundary there? So all that to be said, we didn't know when UNC didn't know um, until that morning. And so as we're all lined up uh, outside the, you know, the, the Keenan Football Center, where the buses are waiting to take the guys, uh, I guess, to the, the airport, uh, everybody just kind of strolls out. And it's not like one at a time where you can just write somebody's name down. It's like big groups of guys coming out <laughs> like they typically do. And so there's a hundred guys, you know, getting on a bus and they're not in gear with their name on the back. So, you know, the, the big name guys, right. You know, sharp looking guys like Merletti, but a lot of the other guys, you kind of like, I'm not sure exactly who that is. So it was, it was a cluster. It was like a high adrenaline thing. We're like, you know, making notes. Okay. Well, I know I didn't see Quan Sturdivant. I know I didn't see Ryan Houston, you know, guys that have a defined look. Um, and it was just a – it was hilarious in hindsight. It was a very funny thing. <laughs> and what, what really irritated me about it is maybe an hour after they got on the bus is when UNC finally said, okay, here's what we have. Here's everybody who left. Uh, and so we're like, we just did that. We made a fool of ourselves for, for no reason apparently. But it was – it makes for a good story. All right. So we've talked about everything leading up to the game, I think, ad nauseum. There was actually a football game that took place, and that's what this, you know, this podcast is typically all about. So we finally get to the game. Matt, what do you remember about kickoff or the pregame story? You know, you guys finally have who you have. You've, you've, you know, you've strapped everything on. You got your pads. You got your, your chin strap ready to go. You've done your stretching. What's the lead up to the game like? So, again, it, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost non-existent in my memory, you know, leading up to that. The, the one thing I kind of remember was, has little to do with what we're talking about, but to me it, was, it meant a lot, was the, the whole flag thing. This was, yeah. um, so it started off to, I'll keep it very brief, but in 2008 is when we started running out with the flag, the NC State game. That was whenever we started. My brother had been in Iraq, flew it on missions, brought it back to me the night before that game. 101st. That's right. So, he brought it uh, – so I actually gave it back to him after the 2009 season because he was going to be going to Afghanistan. 
And he brought it back, same thing, night before the LSU game. So it had now been in Iraq and Afghanistan. This was the first time. It was my first game back. It meant a lot to me. So I was kind of prepping the flag and everything like that. But it had, I do remember it had set in finally, like, hey, this is actually happening. Like, this is, you know, you're going to be starting your first game. And um, I wasn't all that nervous. I tried not to listen to any, like, music to, to get me hyped up just because I always had a lot of natural adrenaline um, before the game. So I, I really listened to music that would like calm me down um, just to try to stay focused, just because if I was too amped up before a game, um, I just couldn't think straight. And, you know, trying to remember all these plays and read, read offenses and make different checks with motions and all these different things, like I couldn't think straight like that. So like I had to make sure I had a clear head and just try to like calm myself, if anything. So that was kind of um, what was leading up to the game. One thing I do remember, actually, I think it was the day of the game, Bruce and Quan flew down for the game. And that was another big thing that like, you know, had rumbles throughout the, throughout the locker room. Like, Hey, Bruce and Quan, they're coming back. They're going to play. And that was a huge relief for Especially us for your position, for us on the back end. <laughs> it was such a big relief. I really don't remember probably a good thing. So I don't put my foot in my mouth and embarrass myself and, and, uh, embarrass some of the other guys but like I didn't feel comfortable with the with the starting linebackers who were going to be playing if it sure. wasn't on I know we had Kevin Reddick but like there's that was I think the only other guy off the top of my head that like really had some experience and that I felt comfortable with so it was a huge relief in that sense well and even though like you said one rep you were old enough and had been in the program so that you know you kind of needed to be that calm you know, a cool collected guy that's kind of commandeering the, the back end of the, the back end of the defense. Um, Greg, major events of major events of the game. Once we kicked off, you know, what, what's your, what's the first thing that jumps out at you? If you can put all the other stuff aside, which I know is tough. What's the one thing that you remember major event of this, of this ball game? Wow. That's, that's, that's a good question. You know, I really think the fact that we, we were not allowed to talk to the players uh, for a long stretch leading up to the game. And I'm always just fascinated. How do you respond when adversity hits, right? I mean, when things are tough and nobody's giving you a chance, how do you respond? And I think the fact that, that North Carolina came out and LSU was filling it. I mean, they, they, they thought they were on top of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the, the fact that North Carolina really battled there early, uh, and I know second quarter didn't go very well, but at least in the opening moments of that game, uh, the scene was not too big for North Carolina, even though they had you know, Marvin Olson, some guys sitting in the stands, and the, the whole talking points for everybody was NCAA mess. Uh, but the, the team really seemed confident and steady, and I know a lot of that goes to, to Butch and his staff. They, they were poised on the sideline. They've been through a lot. Uh, and that, that really stood out to me. as like, okay, like LSU's got the advantage talent-wise, but uh, this is not going to be a cakewalk for them. You know, it was 10 to 7 Tar Heels uh, at one point in the, in the second quarter. And, you know, UNC's defense has settled down. Back to Matt's point, when, when Bruce Carter and Quan Sturdivant showed up on the field, like, you know, the, after they – I think they missed a series and then they uh, – the coaches I put them in. I don't understand, by the way. Why did we just – what are we doing? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> It, it was, but it's funny. Like as soon as those guys got on the field, I think uh, I think Bruce had um, a really, really big, huge hit on our. Is either he or Quan had a huge hit on um on Shepard? 
Yeah, on Russell Shepard, just just decleated him. Um, and, I mean, just those guys immediately made an impact on the game. Jefferson third and dropped again, a jarring hit by Nebler. And there's one of those linebackers, Sturdivant. There they are, Sturdivant and Bruce Carter. Like I said, it's a whole different level. When this, when this North Carolina defense thought they would show up to play this year, these are the kind of playmakers they thought they had. He's right in the middle of the screen, reading the route. Did you notice how he just got his head on a swivel, knowing that Shepard's coming from the outside end, and Carter lays him out and yeah. separates let, him from the ball? Let me correct myself. I said Sturdivant. That was 54 Carter who made that jarring hit. Uh, I feel like that was a, a, a big thing. Matt, what do you remember? And we'll stick this to the first half. What do you remember, like, major events – from your perspective of, of that game, or do you remember kind of some, some ebbs and flows? I do. And it's funny to hear you guys say that we started off so well. And like, I, I watched the game back. I, you know, this is the first time I've watched this game. I watched it on YouTube, which was a really cool experience just because it's like, to me, it's literally just all up here. It's a memory. Right. For me. so like I had no, you don't get to watch as a defender. You don't get to go back and watch the offense. So like, this is like I was watching for the first time, frankly, I didn't remember any of those details, all those different fumbles on offense, drop touchdown passes, Safety yeah. at the, back of the end zone. Like, I, I didn't remember any of that, frankly. And, um, but it's funny to hear you guys say that we started off so well on defense and, like, you know, the, the coaches had you right and everything. It, it was not like that at all. <laughs> at all. And what I mean by that, to illustrate that, so, like, on the first drive, it was the first play, I guess, for all, on offense. They um, – no, it might have been – so, first play on offense, we fumbled, right, and gave it to them. Johnny White fumbled it. Yeah, he got about an eight-yard run and fumbled it forward. They they got the ball, and um, this is – okay, this is the part that I remember. So, they got the ball in our, whatever, 30-yard line or something like that, and we held them to a field goal, which they missed. Yeah. During that series, obviously it's loud. It's the Georgia Dome. <laughs> but during that series, the only way that the defensive backs communicate is through hand signals. Right. Okay, so, like, it's it's all hand signals – for gold, I can give you all the signals now. And you guys are all green too, remember. That's <laughs> Yes, so this is my point. So it's all hand signals. And I'm not going to mention the guy's name because I don't want to embarrass him. Um, but one of the defensive backs came up to me during the, se during the series and said, Matt, you have to scream the coverage to me. I was like, I, I, can't, I can't yell over the crowd. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, just, just look at my signal. I'm giving the signals. I'll keep giving it. And he goes, Matt, I don't know the signals. Oh. And I was like, are you kidding me? So I don't know. He was not a freshman. I don't know if it was too big of a moment. I don't know if it was just, you know, he lost his train of thought. It was just kind of hectic. If yeah. he never knew them, I, I, to this day, I don't know. Um, but that was happening. So like hectic as it is, <laughs> I remember I'm going out of order here, but I remember lining up on the first play and just looking across and like seeing LSU. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to play with them in like NCAA football. Like, right. I love you know, like, <laughs> it. was like surreal in that moment, the, the signal thing. And then on top of that, in the next series, I think it was, whenever they first scored their, their first touchdown, um, we, had, we weren't getting the calls. I told you we're signaling in from the coaches. Coaches weren't getting us the calls in time. I remember that. They I, said that on the, like, I think they said that on the on – They the, said that on the broadcast. You're right. Yeah, and I do remember that now that now that I heard it, but they weren't giving it to us in time. So we would just pick one and say, screw it, running this <laughs> And just so we'd all be on the same page, because if somebody's running cover two and somebody's running cover four, you're screwed from the start. So yeah. um, it was extremely hectic at first. 
And then it like, it obviously calmed down, which is what, you know, it seems like that was perceived from everybody else, which was good, I guess. But um, up until it all came crashing down again in that second quarter, but that's kind of how that kind of worked in, in my memory, at least. So Greg, and that's in that six minute window, as, as Matt just alludes to, of when it all came crashing down, you're essentially looking at about a six minute, 20, six minute, 23 point swing where it goes from Carolina being up three to three big plays. You get a, a 50 yard bomb, uh, an 87 yard kick return by Patrick Peterson, who had roughly 962 <laughs> return yards in the first half unofficially. Um, and then another 51 yard end around. Greg, what do you remember about, uh, about the game changing right there? And kind of what did you take away from this rewatch? Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt the same way watching it again as I did uh, sitting in the Georgia Dome. I, I, game over. I, mean, I, I thought North Carolina, you know, they had the fumbles early, uh, but that, that big, you know, 13-play drive they had uh, after North Carolina, after LSU had, had uh, not been able to move the ball defense, offensively. North Carolina had that big drive, scored, uh, and you're feeling good. And then, yeah, you, you have like a, you know, a trio of just, just big plays. And at that point, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is getting bad. LSU's over on the sidelines, hooping and hollering, having a good time. Uh, the, the place was rocking. I mean, uh, that, that place has always been loud. Um, and so I, I thought, you know what? If you can somehow get into halftime and settle the troops, maybe you, know, you can make it respectable in the second half. But, but really, I thought, you know what? This, this, this is the big uh, knockout blow that LSU needed. And um, – yeah, we know what happened in the in the second half. Shalik to punt it. And Patrick Peterson awaits it. He's going to go. Got a block on the right side, a hole in the middle. Look out! Won't catch him, folks. Forget about it. You'd have to have Deion Sanders out there to catch him. That's 86 yards and the touchdown. Matt, do you remember what, what the mood was like at halftime? Do you remember what the coaches said to you guys or what you were saying to yourselves at that point? It was somber for sure. Anger, somber, but it was just, I couldn't believe it. Like I remember running, you know, running out to, or running to the tunnel and looking at the score. And I'm like, how the hell did that just happen? Like that, it was just, we were just winning. And, and then it just all came crashing down. But two things that you guys mentioned, the long touchdown pass and the Patrick Peterson punt return. So two things just to note that most people wouldn't know or remember about that game, but was especially frustrating for me because I was involved in both. But our punt team obviously didn't have a good game. Right. But what, what was happening, and I, when I talked to Trace Jones today, he, he kind of reminded me of this. Grant Shalek had a boot that yeah. dude could kick it so far and he was out kicking our punt coverage which is a problem because that means basically you know you're kicking it too far you don't have enough hang time for our punt team to get down there yeah. to cover the actual punt and tackle the returner or make him fair catch it whatever so he's not kicking it high enough like that and I don't mean to call him out like this but it was just it is the way it is and Patrick Peterson had like, you know, whatever, 10, 20 yards between him and the, the, uh, the punt coverage team. It's like, you can't give a guy like that, that much space. So that was a big part of it. Another part of the whole punt team thing was because of the revolving door with guys, right. That punt unit didn't have a ton of reps all together as a unit. And that's extremely important. It's like a, 
a diet version of an offensive line, like schemes and twists and things like that. You have to be on the same page as the guy next to you as a whole unit, as the right and left side of the, of the line. So we didn't have a ton of experience there. Again, my first game back, I'm essentially, I was a personal protector back there calling the play and then covering. I wasn't worth it. You know what covering the kick. And um, so there was that part of it. And then the long touchdown pass, um, this really pissed me off just because I remember Jordan Jefferson afterwards, the quarterback was doing the can't see me. Yes. The John Cena thing. After yeah. he threw that touchdown. And to their credit, we were, we were in a cover four look to their credit and their coach's credit. It was a cover four beater route. So essentially what has to happen in that, in that look is if my hands for everyone who's watching, they can see this, right? Yeah. Okay, good. So if my hands, if, if this hand, my left hand is the safety where I'm at, Trey Boston was at corner on this end. There's a wide receiver here and a slot receiver here. If we count these number one, I'll just do this, number one and number two uh, as a receiver. If number two, this is my read, remember I'm above him. Mm-hmm. If number two goes vertical, I stick with him and Trey will run vertical as well. If number two, goes out or horizontal in any way i help double number one with trey up here right does that make sense yeah so you read you read two you rotate based on what that one receiver what one and two receivers do everyone is reading number two mm-hmm. so a, a cover four beater what he did was number two came off the line and just kind of like stuttered and you can tell that he was kind of bsing his way through it like <laughs> it was a trick like yeah. a trick play and he kind of did a little stutter stutter step and then he took off like this, like almost like a wheel route. And if I read that as a vertical, which Trey and I were on the same page, we did. That means I have to go with that wheel route and Trey is on his own now. Over the top, what yeah. What number one did, he did a post, which remember, I'm no longer there. So I'm over here now. This is where Trey is on outside leverage. He runs a post, Trey's on the outside leverage. You're naturally, it's a quarter speeder. That's my point. But the worst part, we had 10 guys on the field. Oh, I don't think they picked it up in the broadcast. No, they did not. They didn't even mention it. And I'll oh. never forget watching it on the broadcast and in person too, I remember, but watching it, I'm looking at Kevin Reddick because Bruce is usually there. Uh-huh. I'm looking at Kevin Reddick and I'm telling him like, get outside. Like you need to scoot over. You need to scoot over. And we had 10 guys. Like I didn't see at the time like what was going on because I didn't know who's rotating in at linebacker, frankly, because there was a revolving door. Yeah. So that whole thing is just a mess. And, I mean, again, that's, that comes back to coaching, the revolving door, all the movement in the depth chart, having guys in that, you know, you're just rotating people constantly. So my point, it was so, so frustrating at halftime because it, we kept shooting ourselves in the foot. Ballpark me here a number, if you could. How many guys do you think played on special teams that day that without all the NCAA suspension stuff would not have played? I have no idea, man. I, I, I legit don't even know how to ballpark that. But I figured it'd probably goes, have to be 10 or 11, right? Another aspect of it that because we have guys like myself and, you know, many other people that were now playing on defense, those roles are now getting filled by other guys on special teams that can't, yeah. you know, we can't do everything. We can't do, play all the special teams and on defense. That's one of the big reasons why our special teams got hurt so bad. And I mean, that, yeah. and that, think about how that played into the field position. Didn't it seem like they always started at the 50-yard line? 
And so, again, I mentioned Patrick Peterson alone. His his return yards made such a big impact on, on field position, to your point, of the game. Uh, if you take those away, you know, those big plays in the second quarter maybe don't happen. And then maybe maybe the, the Tar Heels don't have such a big hole to dig out of in, in the second half. All right, so let's we, – we've gotten to halftime. Um, we talked about the major swing. I'm going to save major controversies for the end, and I think you guys will know why. But – what was your major, uh, I guess, your, your timeless highlight of this game? Greg, I'll go to you first. I'm from Gastonia. So, I mean, I've got to go Jay Boyd, 97 yards. Uh, that's, that's always kind of been the, the big one for me. Um, I think that was such a uh, uh, defining moment for, for this team. And even though they lost the game, uh, I think uh, that really set the team uh, and put them in a good spot moving forward. Um, it ended up being a, one of the, the best seasons I've ever covered from a you know, game standpoint. And I think that really kind of ignited everybody, both the, the fans and, and the team. So this North Carolina drive will start at the three, and two other drives began at the one and the four-yard line. Yates has LZ behind him. And they're going to throw out of the end zone on first down. Going to go deep. Going to go for it all. And he's got the speedster out on top. Here comes Bird. Jay Bird, 97 yards. Touchdown, Carolina. Brett, you remember the last time North Carolina was pinned deep inside their own territory? They ran the football, this time using play action. And how about the move by Boyd? A little stutter and go, a little out and go, completely fooling the LSU defense. Defense That time, Claiborne bit on the outcut, which Boyd has been running a lot. And when he slowed down to hesitate as a receiver, Claiborne jumped on it to the outside and made it very easy for Boyd to get, to the, get right by him. And what a great throw that time for the touchdown. A lot of nuance on that play. You know, you're, you got a quarterback in the end zone. You're starting from the three-yard line. Uh, they roll the pocket to the right-hand side. You know, TJ throws an absolute dime. And once, you know, Jay Boyd, who had leverage at that point in time, once he caught it in stride, he was such a burner anyway. That was a, that was a beautiful play. Matt, you got one you want to share, and it doesn't have to be defensive. What was your, what was your timeline uh, or your, your timeless highlight from the game? Maybe I'm just negative Nancy, but like I don't have that. What sticks out to me is not good. <laughs> it's bad things. Um, so I don't know if it's maybe a low light, but like I remember um, when Russell Shepard did um, when Ru Russell Shepard took the end around for a touchdown, however yeah. many yards that was 40 or 50. Um, I had like the outside leverage. I had the force contain, you know, job there and I had to force them back inside. And usually, I mean, like, I would say 99 times out of a hundred, I could at least get a hand on a guy. Yeah. I literally dove and, and just totally whiffed and didn't even touch him. And he just went untouched, whatever, 40 yards. And I, I just have a distinct memory of being on the ground and looking at him running for a touchdown and seeing the number and seeing his, his Jersey, seeing the back of his Jersey. I was not that's, but that's, that's, that's the one thing that's like seared in my memory. That's <laughs> nightmare fuel, man. I, I, I hate that. That's one of your lasting memories of, of this game. Um, I think one of the things about this game is uh, the fact that it, it was a loss. And you always hear from, from a coaches and a player standpoint that there's no such thing as moral victories. Matt, did you guys take anything good away from this game? Like, you know, the fact that 
the fact that you held LSU scoreless in the second half, um, the fact that you, you know, duct tape and pipe cleaner a team together and, and were able to, to really kind of, like I said, settle in in, in the second half and um, really clamp down on it. And again, this is, this is very much an ifs, ifs and buts scenario, but those three big plays, the, the deep pass that you were talking about, the, the cover four beater, the, the punt return for a touchdown and that 51 yard end around. I mean, it, it, those, are, those are three plays, but I mean, the second half, I, did you guys take anything away as a team, as a defense, you felt like, hey, this is, this, this is something here that we can work with? I did, yeah. And it was, yeah, there was a ton of work to do, and, and we did as a team. It wasn't just me, but I mean, personally, I did just because I felt like I could at least play. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I could trust my knee a little bit. That was the first time I'd really, really, you know, tested it out. And then as a defense, I mean, we knew with it we had some talent, but um, just not a ton of experience. And that was a ton of experience that we got in that first game. And it felt like a lifetime. And it almost reminds me in a way of all this coronavirus. It feels like forever. It feels like a ton. It feels like two years worth and we're only in July. But, um, but that's what it felt like. It felt like a ton of experience. You know, everything that led up to the game, the actual game itself, the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs, the roller coaster ride of that. Um, and, and just kind of getting on the same page and having live, live reps like that in front of a big audience, I think it, it really did help us, um, at least those, those young core guys, to kind of gain some confidence and, and uh, kind of shake the, uh, the nerves off a little bit. Huge play. Jefferson. Randall, no first down. LSU forced a punt. Carter again over there, number 54. Big time. fella making an impact. He sure is. That time, able to get pressure with just rushing four, able to play soft zone coverage behind it, keep everything in front of the defense, and then once the ball is thrown underneath, you're able to come up and make a play. Force him to grow up a little bit. Uh, Greg hit me with a with a stat while we were while we were sitting here talking. Uh, we were talking about field position a second ago and. The average starting field position for LSU uh, was 40, the 46-yard line. UNC was the 23. I mean, you talk about hidden numbers and hidden differences in a game. That's, that, that's very telling right there. Greg, do you remember the feeling in the locker room from your standpoint? You know, you're, you're kind of getting guys' comments after what was such a huge up-and-down emotional grind for a month that then peaked and crescendoed with this game and ended the way it did. What do you remember about the – the, the post game and, and talking to guys. No, I think, I think what Matt said uh, really resonates with me because uh, I was not on the field. I was covering from the, the press box. And so I think we had completely different viewpoints of and perspectives on how this went down. Uh, I was factoring in everything that had transpired the previous six weeks. I mean, it, it has been a hellacious you know, two months. Uh, 13 guys didn't play. You know, as we talked about earlier, Quan and Bruce basically you fly down with Superman like the morning of uh, to be able to play. The fact that you know, North Carolina was you know, had a had two chances uh, to win the game in a game that they should not have been competitive in. Yeah. Uh, for me, I thought it was an incredible story. And so when I went to go talk to the players, I mean, it's a loss. I get it, and the, the goal is to win the game. Uh, but I, I really expected more uh, of an upbeat mood in terms of, hey, you know what? We overcame a lot, uh, fell short at the end, but yeah, that's, that's not really what I got. 
Um, and a lot of it was kind of like what Matt says, you know, the guys knew they had a chance. Uh, they, they weren't worried with the fact that 13 guys did not play. They were worried with the fact they didn't take advantage of those opportunities. Um, and I, I, as I've said before, I think that really kind of laid the foundation. Um, but that was a really good team in 2010. Uh, and sitting with Tommy Thigpen, I'll tell you this, Matt, Tommy Thigpen, um, last spring, um, we were talking about it because he was at Auburn that year. And Auburn ultimately won the national championship with Cam Newton. Uh, Tommy was like, look, you know, Carolina had more talent than Auburn did. There's no question about it. Uh, they had a difference maker with Cam Newton, uh, but talent-wise, up and down the roster, North Carolina did. And so you know, when you understand kind of what was on that roster and how good that team could be, even with the guys that did not play in that game, uh, you know, I had a little bit different perspective. I, I thought it was just an incredible game. If they had won that game, that had been one of the, the best – uh, stories I'd ever covered, and, and the fact they were so close, um, you, you hate you hate for Zach that he wasn't able to pull in one of yeah. those. But you know that, that's how it goes. But just a just a phenomenal game, and uh, yeah, certainly players had a little bit different perspective on it than than I did or, or the rest of the media. I want to echo Greg's point um, and get our listeners if they haven't heard it. Tommy Ashley and I recently did an interview with Denora Searcy. And one of Matt's, you know, backfield buddies, uh, another safety that was on that team. And he talks about when his time in the NFL, he would see guys from this LSU team and that they would say regularly, y'all were better than us. Y'all should have beaten us. Um, and thanks to that degree. And, you know, the game kind of bore that out. Statistically, UNC led every stat. Um, if, if you go back and look, you know, with the exception of the one that, that Greg gave us a few minutes ago uh, about the field position, I mean, passing yards UNC uh, you know rushing yards I think UNC was was closer total yards UNC was up 20 to 11 uh, Carolina in first downs and then a 21 to 15 minute time of possession which is obviously obviously skewed a little bit by the the quick scores that LSU had um, but I think that that kind of bears out that this was a game where LSU kind of didn't lose more than they won uh, and I think that it's it's something that as we're looking back on this game again, I have a totally different perspective. Greg has a totally different perspective. And then Matt has the one where he was actually under the helmet. Um, what guy, you know, every, every section of the show, I always like to point out one player that absolutely just stole the show and it could be from either squad. So Matt, if you want to kind of go with the negative Nancy, <laughs> the negative Nelly you know, theme here, feel free. I'll continue. Yeah. I'll continue. Who's your one guy that you want to point out from this game? Patrick Peterson, hands down. We didn't, Nobody – he was not Patrick Peterson right. then. Nobody knew who he was. I mean, right. yeah, I'm sure. Like, I, I remember leading up to the game, like, yeah, this guy – I don't think he had had any return experience or very little at that point. He had, like, literally never done it. So, we've, we think – I think if I remember this right, they said in the scouting report, like, hey, this guy's fast. Like, he'd been clocked <laughs> at 4-2, 4-3. But, like, they didn't have any, like, much film on him, if at all. So, that was the biggest thing. I mean, he's the best – probably the best – college football player I ever played against. And what's, what's even funnier about that little side note that I, I caught, I remembered this and I caught it on the broadcast too, but when, so they sat him a lot on defense. Yeah. So it was him and Mo Claiborne as the starting corners. And the third corner was Tyran Matthew in his first career college game. Honey Badger. Skinny little kid, number 14. <laughs> and I remember looking out there and I'm like, who is this little kid? Like he was tiny, tiny guy. 
And I like, couldn't believe that somebody that small was playing and that like, you know, they're actually trusting him to get out there. But he, he played a lot in that game because Patrick Peterson was so tired from all the return yards. <laughs> but one thing that I remember, and I heard on the broadcast, it was just funny, it made me laugh, that right when he came in for the first time, um, Brent Musburger, I think it was, right, with him and Kirk. <laughs> yeah, Brent Musburger said, um, they said, oh, Patrick Peterson is now out of the game, and Tyran Matthews checked in as the starting corner. You better make sure that, that UNC takes notice of this. As if we're going to like a little corner. Yeah. But it just made me laugh that nobody knew who he was. And even to that, to that uh, point, nobody knew who Patrick Peterson was either. And that was by far the most uh, amazing player I think I've ever played against. Yeah. I don't don't know if you all picked up on the fact that um, North Carolina's penultimate drive that ended with a sack. That was Honey Badger that, that dropped TJ. Yeah, I sent that to TJ recently, actually. <laughs> I, and it was unrelated, but it was Tyron Matthew tweeted something about – he tweeted something. I follow him, and um, he tweeted something about um, his highlight tape, his college highlight, his last play on the highlight tape was that play. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, and, and the thing is, you know, I, I like that you cited all three of those guys, Matt, because if memory serves, all three of those guys went in the top ten picks of the, uh, of the NFL draft. Uh, and and most of them had pretty stout careers. So TJ had a heck of a had a heck of a, a group of landmines he was having to throw against that day. Who was your guy, Greg? Oh, I mean, Peterson's got to be it, right? I was just looking at you talk about stats. How's this? Gaudy. Look at uh, punt returns for the game. LSU had five punt returns for 163 yards, one touchdown, average 32.6 yards. North Carolina did not have a single punt return. Um, so when you look at just the return yards, both punt and kick, uh, 366 for LSU, 70 for UNC. So that's that, that hidden yardage, and, and Peterson was, was it. I mean, he, he was the guy that, that really broke, the, broke UNC's back there in the second quarter. Um, you know, North Carolina gave it a run there late. But I always thought this game, too, I'll give you another name. Um, 2009 uh, was a difficult year for a lot of reasons for North Carolina's offense. Uh, that, that defense was you know, one of the top in the country. Uh, but that was the year that TJ, a fan, hit him in the head with coming off the field with a yeah. quarter or whatever it was. Uh, a lot of people wanted Bryn Renner because uh, that was his freshman year, I believe, because Renner looked good in spring ball, uh, spring game. And everybody's, oh, yeah, Renner can take over for TJ. Um, so he had a lot of heat on him, a lot of criticism directed his way. And he was fantastic in this game. Um, and he, he really had a great senior year and it led to a, a pro career. So I think he, he had a sneaky good game. And, you know, if he is able to connect with, with Zach on one of those passes there in the final seconds, uh, even, even bigger year for him. Peterson again has crept up to the line of scrimmage showing blitz. They've got the corner up on the line. He's in the sprinter stance. Here he comes. Tries to come around. Can't get there. Throw end zone. Touchdown. Eric Highsmith. The second fourth quarter touchdown for the Tar Heels. Then 
even need the pump fake. He's matched up one-on-one -on -one with Taylor. Taylor starts to come up because, remember, it's third down. He's thinking they're just going for an easy completion. But Yates does a good job stepping up into the pocket, showing the patience, and giving Highsmith enough time to do that double move, get to the back of the end zone. And how about the touch by T.J. Yates? Here's a guy that's been criticized and talked about the whole summer. Where's Brent Renner? When's he going to get in? Yates showing a lot of maturity and a lot of guts tonight for this Tar Heel team. TJ Yates, 28 of 46, which 46 throws, whew, uh, 412 yards, three touchdowns uh, in a John Shoup offense, which was a pro style. That's not a, you know, it's not a run and shoot. It wasn't a spread. He threw the ball 46 times against LSU that day. Uh, TJ is going to be our guest on the post game what I like to call the late interview after the, after this, this part of the show. So be sure you guys all stick around and stick around for that. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd have to say TJ, I just felt like he, he matured so much in that game coming from 2009 and then, you know, coming from 30 to, to 10 at halftime and, and, you know, leading UNC within an eyelash of, of, of almost winning this game. Um, we talked about all, you know, kind of the highlights. We've talked about the lowlights controversies. I'm going to go to Matt first and see if he has any. I've got one that I'm going to sit on, but I want to throw it to you guys. Matt, what do you got? I mean, controversies? Uh, seriously, outside of anything we talked about, I don't know that anything comes to mind other than – I mean, actually, no, I take that back. Now that I'm replaying things back in my head, the very last play, the – could have been DP, you know, defensive pass interference. Dang. Um, I get why the, why the ref wouldn't throw that i really do but it's a um, place to make a call it is it's an extremely difficult place to make a call but it doesn't make it right that you know that they're holding holding zach and you know turning him as he's going for that catch but um i didn't i don't remember feeling like we got you know like robbed by any sense you know just because we dropped a touchdown pass in the second quarter if you remember wide open. Ramsey, right at this right at the goal line you're right mm -hmm. i mean Snap out of the back of the end zone, all the fumbles, all the bone-headed plays, 10 guys on defense. It's like we had every opportunity in the world to win that game. So I, I didn't really think of anything controversial, frankly, other than like the outside noise and, you know, before the game. That's good perspective. And, I, you know, I was, I was trying to throw you a little bit of raw meat there as, as a guy that played in the back seven. Do you <laughs> see that as DPI? So I appreciate your yeah. perspective. Yeah. Greg, do you I, feel – Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's all right. Greg, do you feel like there was – um there was any controversy, you know, whether it be that last play or anywhere else that, that, that maybe is, is worth discussing? Well, I, I always have thought that was pass interference. Um, but immediately after the game, and, you know, this is, this is what heady players do, and uh, I wasn't surprised that Zach then also said this, but he said there was no interference. You know, yeah. I just dropped the passes. Um, that's just the classy comment from a, from a young man who you know, just lost the game. And still almost um, made the catch. Right, right. And I don't think there's any doubt there was pass interference. I think the other thing um, that's of interest to me with this game is uh, who played center for North Carolina, Jonathan Cooper. Um, and there's a reason that he immediately moved back to left guard after this game. And so I thought that was an interesting decision that uh, you know, they, they put him at center for this one. And we're hoping that you know, he could uh, play his future career at the, at the pro level um, at center. But I think uh, some, some poor play in this game uh, made his mind up and made up the minds of, of his uh, coaching staff that he was better suited elsewhere. 
Uh, so I don't know if that's really controversy, but that's that's one of the things when I saw him lining up at center. I was like, oh, that's right. That was this game. Yeah, it was it was noticeable when that first uh, that first fumble that didn't get into TJ's hands, uh, yeah. or that first snap exchange didn't get into TJ's hands. All right, guys, home stretch here. Uh, and for Matt, I feel like I've been sitting here pulling teeth the whole time talking about something that's been so raw, but I appreciate your <laughs> honesty. Um, and, and this may, maybe this will help kind of find something or a, a shining star to, to, to lasso around as, as we wrap up. But Matt, what were your, what were your feelings during the rewatch? Did you see something, you know, you mentioned earlier that this was a perspective you had never seen. You never rewatched this game. What did you feel rewatching it as a guy who was under the helmet for the, you know, for the original go round? Um, I hate to be so negative, especially on myself, but, um, it's the truth. So, I mean, literally the first play of the game, kickoff return, um, I get run over. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first thing I caught. I'm like, God bless. I was just getting ready. For, I was just getting you ready for fatherhood, brother. Yeah, no. So, um, that was, uh, that was one thing that I, I remember feeling uh, that this kind of like stirred up was just, um, you know, Seeing it with a fresh, you know, uh, eye, I guess is the best way to say it. Seeing it after all these years have gone by, I realized that I wasn't ready. So, like, all of those feelings I told you about with my knee and everything like that, I was feeling that, but I wasn't articulating that. And um, and I believed that I still could play. But But watching it back now... I could see that I was not the player that I was even the next year mm. and that I was before that. Like I, I could tell I was just, it wasn't there for me. So that was really frustrating for me to watch just cause I didn't play well. And, you know, I had a hand in, in us losing too. And everyone looks at like Zach, but there's so many people who drop the ball, um, you know, no pun intended, but, um, but there was just so many instances where we shot ourselves in the foot. Um, so that's ultimately like what, what kind of sticks with me, unfortunately, um, you know, to, to Greg's point, you know, you thought we were going to be more upbeat, you know, like, God, that was so close. But I mean, you think I wrote these down to recap what went into this game, all the outside noise, suspensions, who's on the bus, true freshman, third string defense, eyes <laughs> flying in the day of the game, Bruce and Quan, my knee, making sure my guys know the plays and the signals fumbles, drop touchdown passes, safety out of the back of the end zone, coaches can't get us to play in the red zone, 10 guys on the field for a 50-yard touchdown pass, who the hell is Patrick Peterson, the comeback, <laughs> letdown, all of these things. Like you had and all of that culminating into one moment yeah. and you're this close to winning it and it gets snatched from you. So it was tough watching it back. It, it, it stirred up a lot of feelings and, and I, it's almost like I relived the entire thing uh, in a way, you know, not nearly as, as maybe powerful as, as doing it the first time around, but it was, it was tough to watch it back. Uh, smorgasbord you just laid out. If I were doing like a, a 10 second television or radio preview of this show, it would be that little nugget that you just gave us. Greg, what, what about you? You know, this is, you saw the first go round from the press box. You had been so immersed in all of the other stuff around the game. What did rewatching this bring up for you that maybe you hadn't felt before? Well, you know, this is cheating a little bit. I'll Joey, so I, I apologize. Um, I contend to this day, I've, I've covered, I've covered this team for 13 years. Um, and this, this year was the uh, best coached team that I've seen um, just because of everything that transpired. And a lot of it had to do too with, with the leadership um, from TJ. I mean, 
Matt and everybody involved uh, just did a, a great job kind of keeping their head up. Uh, every reason for the season really good on the tubes. But to start with this game and then for it to end with the Music City Bowl uh, in Nashville, I mean, could you, could you put together a better bookend um, for, for a season with everything that took place? And so just the fact that you, this team had, from my opinion, had, had really no business you know, having a chance to win this game against LSU. And yet there they are at the end. Had some tough losses, won some big games, uh, and then you go to Nashville and all that transpired with, with that game. So uh, it was just a, a fun year from a football perspective, but it really took me a couple years after the fact to really appreciate you know, all the interviews that we did with the players over the course of the year. Um, the, the kids were very sharp. Uh, the ones that got into some trouble uh, were very open about the mistakes that they made. Um, the other guys that had nothing to do with anything were very uh, willing to you know, let bygones be bygones and, and embrace the guys and say, look, you know, we're a team. We've got to get back together. And so all those things really kind of impressed me about the – it showed me kind of what a, a locker room is supposed to be. Um, it's, it's, it's probably easy when, when things are, are simple and – you're good or you're bad and nothing uh, extraneous happens. But when, when crap hits the fan, as they say, uh, it kind of shows, kind of shows your metal and shows what you're about. And I've always had high opinions of, of the guys on this team and the coaching staff for how they handled everything. And here comes Ridley fumble. Carolina's got a life. That fumble was picked up by Quan Studevant, who was cleared last night. And with a minute eight to go, a life, right? I cannot say enough about North Carolina and just not giving up tonight. Everything this team's been through, they're, they're, they're trying to get that football out. They're trying to go for the strip, attacking the football. They're able to do it. Sturdivant comes up with a big play. Now you have a situation where you get the ball back to an offense. You're out of timeouts. And Butch Davis realizes that, you know what? I've got a quarterback with some experience. i got potential playmakers on the outside. We can make this happen. That's a, that's, that's a great thing to, to kind of put into perspective when you talk about the bookends of both of them. All right, Greg, I gave you the first word. Matt, I'm going to give you the last one. What's, what's one lasting memory uh, that you want to share that you feel like we can't close the book on this discussion of this game without mentioning? No pressure. Really, I guess it's kind of a sad piece of it, but I lived with Zach at the time, and he was just – I remember watching him, you know, in the press conference and everything, and somebody asked him, like, hey, well, how do you feel? And just, like, stone-faced, he was just saying, you don't want to know how I feel. And it almost chokes me up just talking about it, just because it he was in such a bad place mm. mentally and emotionally. And he had felt like he truly, like he is so competitive and so hard headed in a good way um, that he took that really, really hard. And um, that's the biggest thing that, you know, I kind of, you know, between that, between the, I told you about Russell Shepard and like that image seared in my memory, that and, and Zach saying, you don't want to know how I feel is like seared in my memory from, from that game. So um, unfortunately it's not a, a good one. Yeah. Again, that this is, um, it was fun to look back at, but at the same time, it's like a lot of bad feelings that go along with that. 
you know, with that fun. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what sticks with me, unfortunately. This is the first episode of the throwback where we've ever actually looked at a loss and I knew you'd be able to handle this because of the type of person you are. And I appreciate your willingness to be so open with so much stuff that was not only surrounding the game, but a game that was had to have been gut wrenching for you guys, you know, to be the guys in the room that, you know, that sweat all over that field and, and put all the time in on it. But I think that's a great way to kind of put it in perspective. You know, you've got a, you've got a 20, 21 year old kid just who's absolutely eviscerated uh, because of the way a game, the way a game ended. And I think that, you know, we're all lucky to be able to watch and kind of participate and, and be a part of that as fans. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's been really cool to hear, you know, from an inside Carolina perspective to go back and look at this. And I hope that folks will stick around and hear us talk uh, with TJ Yates after the break here and kind of get his take on it uh, on what was the biggest, if not at that point in time, one of the biggest games in Carolina football history and didn't turn out the way the Tar Heels wanted a 30 to 24 loss to the LSU Tigers, but man, there's a heck of a ton of memories around that. Matt, I feel like I got to bring you back on to a different show that's that's got a little better outcome and, and maybe let you flex a little bit, um, you know, bring up some some better memories so that I can get this bad juju out of you. But um, I know you'll probably go rub that little fuzzy headed one year old uh, when you when you get off of here and that'll make everything all better. But uh, want to give a big shout out again to Johnny T-shirt. Want to say thanks to Greg Barnes from Inside Carolina. Check out all his stuff. He's posting stuff seemingly every day. I want to say thanks to Matt Merletti. Uh, follow him on Twitter um, or wherever else you want to try to get your Merletti news. But Matt, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us tonight. And I uh, hope everybody will stick around after the break to hear us talk to TJ Yates on this episode of The Throwback on Inside Carolina, InsideCarolina.com podcast. Yates waits. Time flashes. Incomplete. LSU wins it. No flag down there on the field. They didn't win it as much as they survived it, ladies and gentlemen. A gutty performance by the Tar Heels. They were down by 20 points at the half. And closed to within six with two fourth quarter touchdowns. We keep talking about it, but anybody who's followed this story with North Carolina, everybody, I, I, you know, you heard people saying how they didn't even have enough to dress for this game tonight. And they heard all of that on the outside. They came in with an us against the world mentality, and they gave it everything that they had. They left it out there on the field. It came down to the final play, and he found he, he's looking for the matchup that he feels most comfortable with. He's been going to him all night. Pianalto not able to hold on. And as you said, LSU didn't necessarily win this game. They survived. All right, everybody, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. This is the second half of episode 11, I believe, of the throwback here on Inside Carolina, InsideCarolina.com. It is my esteemed privilege as we talk about the 2010 LSU-UNC game from Atlanta. I figured, you know, why not go close by to the location the game was held and see if I can dig up somebody that may or may not have had an impact on that game. I'm pleased to have with us today from Marietta, Georgia, Taylor Jonathan Yates, uh, the fifth round pick of the 2011 <laughs> draft. It's important. I, I got to give you your, your government name, right? Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> the fifth round pick in the 2011 draft by the Texans. He had seven seasons in the league. Um, let me hit you some, some career stats here to, to blow your head up, TJ. Uh, All-time yeah. career leader in passing yards with 9,377. 
uh, third in single season passing yards with uh, 3,418 in 2010, fourth in career passing TDs with 58. And he also holds the third, seventh, and eighth game high passing yards, uh, one of which was this game that we're talking about. Uh, and, and also the first Carolina Tar Heel to ever start a game in the NFL at quarterback, which is, is hard to believe, but you're the guy, right? Apparently, I didn't believe it either when it first happened because there's been there's been so many great quarterbacks before me. But uh, yeah, that's that uh, that's, that surprised me too when I first heard it. And some of these ones that you're saying now, I didn't really know either. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear them. And I know a lot of my stats didn't hold up for very long. You know, the whole different type of offense rolling through college football changed that. But you know, it's you know. it's funny you bring that up because that was one of the things that really jumped out at me on this you know on this game, the rewatch. I mean, we're only talking about ten years ago. But it's mm -hmm. how often do you see a pro-style offense in college now? Uh, not very often. I mean, we were under center. We were an eye back. We had a true fullback. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Coach John Shoup, he was uh, – that's kind of how he was brought up. That was his, his basis of football. You know, we were running a West Coast system. But um, to have a true regular 21 personnel, true fullback, two wide receiver, big wide tight end type of offense is, is kind of a thing of the past. And – but that's what we were good at. And, uh, you know, somehow we were able to uh, end up passing for a lot of yards in that offense, not only running for that many yards. What was crazy is, you know, kind of what you see coaches and OCs get now with, with the spread formations, try to get guys in space. And I remember watching this game, Coach Shoup, you guys like to do a lot of pre-snap motion, whether it was moving the A back around, flipping that full back out wide, uh, or, or just, you know, flipping the field a little bit. Talk about what that's like as a quarterback when you're under center. You, again, now everybody's used to seeing, seeing a guy starting out in the shotgun and he's got everybody moving in front of him. But you're under center. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, like I was kind of saying before, you know, the, the days of getting in a huddle, having multiple personnel, whether it's two tight ends, two running backs, a fullback and a running back, three wide receivers, getting in a huddle and looking the guys in the face and blurting out a long play call <laughs> and cadence – and doing all the communicating with your guys in a huddle pre-snap is, is kind of a thing of the past. And it's almost a little bit sad because that's where, you know, that's where I love to interact with all the players and the guys and, you know, giving them little tidbits before the snap and stuff. Nowadays, it's everybody runs the line of scrimmage. You get lined up, you look over to the sideline, you get your play, <laughs> and you go like that. And I mean, and, and being in the NFL for, you know, a number of years now, you see these guys coming in, especially quarterbacks, it is something that is completely foreign to them. You know, they don't do it in high school. They don't yeah. do it in college. They don't get under center. Some of these guys have never taken an under center snap before they get to the NFL or call a play in the huddle. So, I mean, that's, that's wild to me that you said it was only about 10 years ago when you know, this, these type of offenses still existed, but um, they're obviously more prevalent, um, you know, in the NFL now and still, um, but, you know, it's just the game's changing a little bit, man. It's, it's different now. Well, let's talk about this particular game against LSU. I mean, this was, this was the stage, right? This is what, you know, Butch Davis was brought in for, uh, you know, season opener against a marquee SEC opponent on national TV. What do you remember about your game prep before all the NCAA stuff happened? I mean, you guys had this for like, you guys yeah. had this for six months before the bomb got dropped. What was yeah. your mindset in, in prepping for a game of this magnitude? Yeah, other than what you just said, the, the bomb. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. That's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother uh, you know, conversation. But, 
you know, like you said, that's, that's what Coach Butch Davis was brought in to do. He was brought in to, you know, elevate our program as a whole, and he was doing that. Um, you know, we had a, a good year um, going into that year, but we knew that this was going to be obviously the one we were working on all offseason to get ready for. It's a huge game. It's nationally televised, a Chick-fil-A kickoff, you know, against LSU in the Dome. I mean, like, that's what we, we talked about and what we trained for all offseason. So um, just getting ready for it was fun. Um, you know, it was something to get excited about going into the next season. You know, I'm not saying that starting off versus a James Madison type of team is not a bad right. thing, but having this going into your preparation in the offseason and your, your summer training is – is just that extra bit of motivation that got everybody going that offseason. Yeah, it's funny. We, uh, we talked to Denoris recently, another right outside of Atlanta guy, and, and we asked him about the NCAA stuff. So I want to throw it to you because it obviously had a big, big impact on this game. Maybe not so much on the offensive, on the offensive side of the ball. You guys lost both your starting running backs. Yeah. Um, but I know, you know, when the defense is depleted, that changes how you guys have to play, right? Like that's going to change some of your scheme, probably some of your play calling. You're the QB. How are you keeping your teammates focused with all of this NCAA suspension, you know, watching who's going to get held out? How, what was your mindset with regard to my job as a quarterback, keeping my team in line with all this stuff around you? Um, you know, when you, when you started to say, like, what was my first memory of this game? My very first memory about this game is literally sitting right in front of Keenan and the whole team is getting on the buses and there's multiple players on the phone with the NCAA not know whether or not they can get on the bus. I'm talking like everybody's on the bus. There's a couple players out there talking to NCAA compliance, literally not get on the bus or not to go to Atlanta. And these aren't just like guys. These are obviously like our entire defense, starting running back, starting wide receiver. You know, you name it. We had that position in that same type of situation where we didn't know who we were going to have going into the game. And for me going into it, it was – I have to be as prepared as humanly possible because you never know who's going to be lining up next to you. You never know who's going to be in that huddle next to you where you have to tell them exactly what to do because they might not know. We were, I mean, we, we exhausted our entire roster basically to, to complete that game because there was true freshmen playing on special teams, offense, defense, you name it. Um, you know, for, but so for the older guys, the leaders in the team, the coaching staff, everybody, it took a, a ginormous effort to be able to be prepared for the game and have every single player on our roster prepared to play. That's tough. And then when you consider the fact that, you know, you're looking across the field at LSU, who in their defensive backfield, <laughs> you know, had a guy named Peterson, a guy named Honey Badger, mm-hmm. Bo Claiborne. So, so what was your offensive game plan? What did you and Coach Shoot cooked up uh, knowing who LSU was having line up against you? What did you guys – what was the main theme? you know, we kind of made it about ourselves. We, we got set out that we were going to motion. We were going to shift them. We were going to try to confuse them. It was going to be more about us executing perfect plays, you know, no matter what the defense uh, was going to give us. Cause especially the first game of the year, you don't always know what you're going to see. Right. You know, coordinators may change scheme may change. They might switch something up different fronts, different coverages. So, you know, typically when you're going into a first game of the year, anyways, no matter who the opponent is, you kind of have to, kind of pare your game plan down a little bit and just be ready for multiple looks on the defensive side of the ball. So, um, you know, we tried our best to, to confuse them a little bit, use a little bit of tempo um, and kind of just stick to what we do, which was, uh, you know, run the football, play action and, and throw the ball when we have to. And, 
I mean, you kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. You know, with our defense as depleted as it was, we had to score more points, and we were behind more often. You know, throughout that entire season, especially this game, you know, we were down 30 to 10, I think, at one point. So we were kind of forced into the uh, the position to throw the ball a lot, and that made for a lot of throwing yards, like you said. Like I had a, one of the record games that that, that game. So just 46 just, passes, man. No, no, nothing that the ice bath couldn't help, right? I'll tell you what, that was not <laughs> our, going into that game was to throw the ball 46 times, not even close. So. Um, that was just kind of the the way the game went, and we had to do what we had to do to get in our to get ourselves in a position to win. Unfortunately, we came up ugh, just so yeah. close, um, you know. But that was I mean, it was a wild game. So you touched on a little bit, and your memory's good, by the way. It was thirty to ten at the half. Um, it was not what you guys had hoped. In addition to the suspensions and and the score. You had some guys getting hurt, so Johnny White goes down. You end up being down to what was essentially – and Tony Elzey had a great season that year, but, I mean, yep. he was essentially your fourth running back uh, yep. if you'd have looked at a pregame depth chart. What's in your mind, and what are you telling your teammates at halftime when just everything seems to have fallen apart and then you got 30 more minutes to go out there and play? I remember very much at the beginning of the game, we missed some big opportunities. We, we dropped an early touchdown. We had to kick a field goal. Um, we missed a couple of big plays, didn't convert on third downs, didn't convert in the red zone. You know, I, I, from what I remember, the message at halftime was just stick to what we were doing because we were hurting ourselves. And we knew versus a team like this, you can't give up much ground. So yeah. we knew we were going to have to play, you know, almost perfect in the second half. And hopefully the ball would, you know, kind of drop our way in a couple instances for us to be able to get back into it. But, you know, just kind of keeping the same mindset, not totally – given up on the game plan, you know, at halftime, we kind of had to go a different way once it got into the fourth quarter and we had to start throwing the ball, but coming out of, uh, out of the half, we just, we just kind of had to stick to our game plan. So the defense settled into the third. I think some of those guys that were really green started understanding what they were seeing from, from LSU's offense, but then the fourth happens. What was different in the fourth? Was it, was it you guys spread in the field? Was it your leadership as a, you know, as a senior, things just kind of clicking for you? Uh, you know, what was different? Were, were you just finding things that the defense was giving you and, and picking that apart? Yeah, a little bit. You know, it's, you know, after the initial shock and then in the second quarter when they put all those points up on us, they got that kick return. Yeah. Um, and like you said, like, some of the guys being very green, but there were still a lot of veteran players that had never played in a game like this, myself right. included. I had never played in the Dome and – against an SEC school, a big game like that. That was a first for me as well as, you know, as well as some of my other teammates. So it kind of took everybody a little bit to calm down after that first initial shock of them going up big on us. But, you know, it was that one play, that 97-yarder to, to Jay Boyd that kind of turned the game on top of itself. And we kind of used that as momentum to kind of get us back there late and got a couple uh, turnovers, which helped um, kind of get us in position and, you know, I would think it's that when we were backed up all the way, like it was 30 to 10, we're backed up on our own three yard line. I mean, middle of the third quarter, if I remember correctly, it was yes. like, I mean, this one doesn't look good. Um, <laughs> and then to call a, for coach shoot to call a play action shot like that from your own, own three yard line where I was in the end zone for the majority of the, the play action in the, in the boot. So I mean, that's a ballsy call in itself. And, <laughs> It worked out well, and that was kind of a, a coming out party for Jay because he's – man, that guy had some speed now. He was out running every, every DB on that, that great uh, LSU defensive backfield that game. And 
You know, I think he had 225 that game, a couple touchdowns. I mean, he, he kind of had a coming out party there, and that, that helped spark us to get back into it. You guys hooked up quite a bit. I'm glad you pointed out all the nuance in that play call because it took a great little double move from Jay. But you were also – they roll, you know, you guys rolled the pocket to the right side. And, and this is one of the things that, again, having, having the pleasure of watching during your career, you threw one of the best deep balls I think that's probably ever been at Carolina. So this, this play that we're talking about uh, where, where you connect with Jay for what at the time was the longest play from scrimmage in Carolina football history – uh, and it may still be, uh, forgive me for not checking on that. The fact that all of those things ha- took place and you still just laid the ball perfectly on him. And he's, like you said, he, he a heck of a long strider. And, and LSU's DBs were watching his, his jersey nameplate as, as, as much as they could. Oh, yeah. That was, it was just one of those plays that, that was in our arsenal. And the, the perfect timing, perfect call, perfect route. Um, you know, it just, it just worked out well. And, that, and even at the time, like, he throws a big long touchdown pass. I remember right after that play, like my one of my best friends uh, and my roommate at the time, Ryan Taylor. I was kind of just slowly trotting off the field, and he came up to me and like slapped me. It was like, "Come on, dude, let's go!" Like that was awesome. Like let's get this thing going again. So, and even at the time, we were still kind of out of it, but uh, you know, he kind of snapped me back at, into it right even after the play. So, um, just the the kind of vocal leadership from everybody on the field and all the all the players that we had really helped us you know, kind of get a shot there. That was a real cool sequence. And it's, it's neat that you brought up uh, RT running out and kind of giving you that smack. If our, yeah. if our viewers and our listeners want to check that out, you can actually see that on the replay. It's they're showing the replay from the rear end zone angle. And yeah. you can see, you kind of give you a little fist pump. And then RT comes up and just kind of, kind of <laughs> goes, goes nuts on you, which is, which is really kind of cool to see knowing what you know, what we know now. Um, yeah. We talked about that play being, you know, just a real flawless call, execution, everything. Is there a play from this game that you wish you had back? Uh, yeah, it would be the, the the two last plays, the Penalto, the first one. It was yeah. – it wasn't the best ball. I, w- I was a little timid on the throw. I put it a little bit on his back shoulder when I didn't have to. Uh, he still had a chance to catch it, but – if I had put the ball in the right spot, that probably would have been an easy touchdown. The second one was uh, kind of just a tough bang-bang play, depending on the defense. Uh, but that first one, man, I just ever so slightly short-armed it and uh, didn't connect. When it left my hand, I thought, I thought we had the game. Yeah. But just, you know, that whole, that whole last series was kind of a blur, just getting down there as fast as we could, converting all those plays. And um, it's something that we did all offseason, just working on two-minute drills and I mean, we were just clicking on all, on all cylinders at that point. But as painful as I'm sure that those those two were, um, I'll go ahead and give you some cover here. I'm going to swear that that last play was pi. I mean, they had a linebacker draped all over his back. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if you're going to take that to your right grave. With- I'll own that for you. I'll I'll be the bad guy and say that that was a terrible missed call. Um, that, but yeah, going back and watching that again, yeah. it did not make it any easier. Yeah, I will, you know, since it's so far removed, I'll go ahead and agree with you on that. <laughs> well, you know, it was the bang-bang play. could have gone either way. He right. was being hugged on the, on the right arm. He tried to get it with his left. Um, and still almost made the play. He still almost made the play, exactly. And that's just a super tough call for any referee to make that yeah. call in that instance. So, you know, I, I agree with you. And then I can also see the other side. But, you know, if I had to give him a little bit better ball in the first one, I think we – this would be a little bit different uh, interview, you know what I mean? <laughs> so this is – absolutely. Well, the unique thing about this particular game that we're doing for the throwback 
this is the first loss that we've talked about, but I think most UNC fans looking back on this probably felt differently about this than they had at least until that point any number of losses just because of the way you guys battled back with and again if there is any other better picture of adversity that can be thrown into one single game I'd love to know what it is aside from you know the the, somebody dropping through the ceiling or (laughs) or you know throwing firecrackers on the field I don't know what it is I, I couldn't agree more uh you know at that point it was all such a whirlwind and I remember even in the hotel the day of the game the night before the game we're still in that same situation where we don't know who's going to take the field, yeah. which unbelievable. Like we have no idea who our starting 11 on offense and 11 on defense are going to be going into the game, even the day of. Yeah. Um, so that was obviously tough. Uh, and then going against the opponent we were going against and, and on a big stage like that, you know, I was, it's tough to talk about moral victories and a loss. Right. Um, but like you said, it's just like, we learned so much from that day and, from that experience, I, I personally, all my teammates and coaches as well, I mean, we learned so much from that, from this experience. And, you know, if you want to take moral victories, this is probably one of the best ones you can take. Absolutely. Was there anything specifically from this game that you, you remember later in that season that you were like, oh, we've done X, Y, Z before, or, you know, I've seen this scenario, or we've been in a two-minute drill. I mean, the, you know, the easy one would probably be to look at the the, the Tennessee game, but I mean, you're the mm-hmm. QB. What, what was something that you remember taking away from this LSU loss in, in such dramatic fashion that, that you were able to use later in the year? Yeah, I would definitely say the Tennessee game. That, that, that could be a whole nother episode. In itself. Oh, it will be. It's coming. Okay. Good tease. Thank you. Good okay. tease. Throw it up. Um, you know, I would say the FSU game too. We had some guys go down late in that game on offense mm-hmm. and we had to have some true freshmen play at the running back position um, in a couple other spots and, you know, going in, going into that game, it was kind of the same. We had some injuries at running back, we had some injuries a couple of places. We knew we had the possibility of some young guys playing. So the preparation that week wasn't as crazy, um, you know, due to the fact that we learned from our experiences against LSU. So just getting guys ready all throughout the season that had to be prepared to play. We built on that, you know, as the season went, because we had that, a, a stepping stone, that learning experience, the first game of the year, yeah. but like, like it's unprecedented what actually happened. So that really prepared us through the whole year. And then, yeah, the Tennessee game, you know, late in the, uh, the last game of the, my career was obviously one I'll never forget. Um, you know, that like, we'll talk about that when we uh, go to the <laughs> next episode, but um, yeah, it just, I mean, that experience, you, you can't write, you can't write a bit different, better story for learning from things. So what's, and, and you just hit enough of a cachet to probably last 10 episodes of the show, but <laughs> what's your lasting memory of this ball game? You know, it's weird. Like I have never really been an emotional guy on the football field whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, like when I walked off that field and I got in the tunnel and I just lost it. I don't know why wow. I wasn't like upset. I think it was just because of the, the up and down in the game and the the amount of adrenaline that was going on. I mean, it was like, I have no idea why, but I sobbed like a baby in the, in the tunnel on the way in. And I think it was just because of what just all the things that uh, just occurred and the week before and the week leading up to it and everything was just such an, an emotional roller coaster for everybody. And we were so close, man. It was, yeah. gosh, we were so close. And it was, it was an awesome game to be a part of. And I remember walking off the field too. It was really weird because the LSU fans were applauding us as mm-hmm. we walked. 
And I had never really experienced something like that either. Like they were like, bravo guys. I mean, you guys did an amazing job. And even though we won, we still appreciate, you know, all the, all the, the game that just happened in front of us. Cause it was a wild one. And, um, like you know, we talked about it, it, it was a loss, but it was one of the most memorable losses I'll have for good reasons. I think smart football fans probably knew that they, uh, they avoided losing more so than they won. And I know that may sound like sour grapes coming from inside Carolina or a podcast talking to, you know, the former Tar Heel quarterback of that game. But the other thing is, you know, I appreciate you opening up and sharing that kind of emotional uh, exhaustion you had. I mean, if there's ever been a situation where, you know, a, a college senior has gone through that much of a spectrum and a range of, of just emotional experience, I'd love to know what it is because, God, like you said, there's two <laughs> weeks and then for it all to play out the way that it did, man, it doesn't shock me at all that, that you just, you know, just kind of were overcome in, in the tunnel. That's a, Absolutely. that's humanity. Yeah, exactly. And there was only two games, my last game walking off, uh, you know, walking out of Keenan for the last time against NC State. And then that one, the only games I've ever been emotional for in my entire life. Um, and I still can't put a finger on why the LSU game was one of those. But like you said, I was just, emotionally exhausted from everything that just happened and it was just man it was an awesome to be awesome thing to be a part of I wish like heck we would have been able to pull it out because that I think that game winning that game would have been I mean we talk about how big of a magnitude that game was from just us losing if we would have won that game and pulled it out I mean you know the sky would have been the limit from on from there on and that would have been somewhat of a program changer in my in my you know perspective but you know, just as much as it would have been for a win, we still, you know, gained a lot of it, a lot from it, um, even in the loss. Absolutely. It's absolutely nothing to shake your your fingers at. I mean, 28 of 46, 412 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. And save for a missed P.I. call at the end of the game, who knows what would have happened. But, uh, yeah. TJ, I appreciate you being so honest and open with us and taking some time for us to talk about uh, about this game. Hopefully, uh, our listeners and our viewers are, are going to have as much fun with this as I have. But you know, I want to thank you for it. want to say thanks again to Johnny T-Shirt for sponsoring the show. Thanks again to Greg Barnes and Matt Merletti for joining us for the first half. Uh, and for Thelonious Jesus Yates, uh, all the way from, all the way from uh, Central Time Zone, joining us tonight on the throwback. Uh, I'm Joey Powell, Inside Carolina, InsideCarolina.com. Be sure to rate, review the show. Uh, If you appreciate what you're hearing, if you don't like it, let us know. We want to fix it too. But thank you guys for tuning in. We appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next time. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.